Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds on KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochileo. Thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo, and before we get started, I'd like to thank the contributors to my show, executive producer Candice Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, senior editor Amanda Steele, author of Ghosts of Me, binaural production engineer Damian Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. If you are interested in contributing to this podcast, go to everythingimaginable2020.com and you'll find a whole bunch of information there. You can donate to my PayPal account to help cover the cost. You can do promotion, um, looking for somebody to manage my newsletter. There's all different ways to help keep this thing going. And now, without any further ado, our guest for today is Terry Lovelace author of Devil's Den. Thanks for coming back on, Terry. Thank you, Gary. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Um, let's see. Where should we start, you think? I mean, I think most people probably listened to that first episode, so they probably have a good idea with that. Um, I think I'd like to start, some, maybe you know, start with the monkey men. Yeah, I could start with the monkey men, yeah. Yeah, let's go there. Yeah. You know what, uh, I could read that poem I wrote too. Yeah, that's. I think that's pretty. Uh, I think that's pretty impactful. It is. Let All me right. let me start with that. Okay. I I always you know what I I wrote this when I was a kid. When I was eighteen years old, and it's it's still it's still, uh, you know, it's kind of emotional to read. Uh, so yeah, here we go. Wrote this in high school for literature class. Got an A. And you just got a lot of use. But this is about the monkey man. And this will this will tell you everything that uh, you need to know. Shadows from the hallway crept into my room. Long the monkey man, too, I assume. Never before in life had I seen a creature that grinned before I could scream. A candle's flame dances before it grows dim. One monkey man's shadow has slowly crept in on his knees and with ease. He is perched on the edge of my bed, if you please. The silence, the silence was broken one inch from my ear as the monkey man whispered, my boy, I'm right here. Now monkeys were four and were masked to deceive children or even grown men, if you please. I started to tremble and covered my head, but monkeys, all four, crept close to my bed. Outside of my covers, four peeled with delight, these monkey men here. Will they take me this night? Faces with grins approach me and say, Terry, won't you come with us and play? Come with us now. Give us your hand. We'll take you to an unbelievable land. You may not remember the last time or when, but come with us now and you'll see it again. But I said, I know you are not what you seem. And if you are real, then why can't I scream? This night, the monkey men take me with ease. And I'm, but a ch- and I'm but a terrified child, if you please. These things are not men that are born of this earth. Near a star to the west is the place of their birth. It matters, what, it matters not what I do or say. Tonight, 
like the others, they'll take me away. Where shall we go? How long must I stay? Tell me, you four. Tell me now, I do pray. We're going home, Terry. There's no reason for gloom. See that star over there, just east of your moon? We traverse great distance, pick you up, and we're gone to return you to bed before breaks the dawn. We must take from you blood and things we do need. Many entities one day will be born of your seed. When I'm taken away, can my mom hear my calls across all of space, through brick and through walls? Will she think that I'm lost or been seized from my bed? Will she worry I suffer or fear I am dead? She'll cry and sob while I go and play if I don't return before breaks the day. And when I return, will I come back whole? Or will sinister deeds take some terrible toll? We'll soon arrive at the place we do dwell. You'll see it is neither heaven nor hell. A place with two suns lights our day. A place that is different, but also the same. The years have passed quickly as life slips my grasp. Pray, tell me, why did you hurt me, I ask. From earth you take away women and men and tag us and track us toward what an end. We are sentient beings that feel self-aware, but you are just monkeys and monkeys don't care. As a child, I had no voice to say what may come to pass on some future day. I have the need and the right to know what was done to me so many years ago. Surely you knew that one day I'd be grown, no longer helpless, no longer alone. Did you not believe that I'd live to confess the memories you stole and failed to suppress? So flawed was your sinister plan ill-conceived that others first scoff, but then come to believe. I swear by all that is holy and all that is right, the next time you come to take me at night, when four little monkeys crouch near my bed, I'll take my revolver and shoot them all dead. The end. Wow. Yeah, I wrote that nine years after my last the last time they took me. But you know, um, mm. it's it's it stays with you. It's incredible. So so tell my listeners like what what inspired that poem, like the story behind it. You know, it it was crazy. I was uh, I, the, the last time I had any interaction with ET as a child was at the age of nine, and then I had nine years of peace. Um, and I was in this, I was in this stupid literature class. It was, um, they wanted us to write a poem. And I, uh, for some reason, uh, I hadn't even thought about the monkey man in years and, uh, sitting down to try to write something, um, that all just came flooding back. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to make this the topic of my poem and maybe try to, in a few words, preserve everything that happened. So that's the genesis of it. Um, I handed it in. I don't think my uh, I don't think my literature teacher understood, but uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, and it's more relevant today than it was when I was eighteen. Yeah, I, I mean that poem describes what happened to you perfectly from the very beginning. You know, them coming into your room, and I know in your story you mentioned them taking you to a ship, and there's like a bunch of other children there. Yeah, you know, what's crazy is in, in, in these emails that I've got from other people after they read Devil's Den, 
Uh, I have, uh, especially the se- in the second book, I've had people write to me and, and say, you know, I was taken to some room and it was, and they describe it all the same way as being a round domed room um, with a bunch of kids that they don't recognize. They're not from school, not from the neighborhood. Uh, and they play. And uh, one of the things I remember was that we were sitting like cross-legged on the floor and this woman that I called Sue, mm-hmm. um, uh, Sue and Betty are one and the same entity. Um, but they would have us sit cross-legged on the floor and we had these geometric forms. I had like a four inch, uh, blue cube and it weighed nothing. I mean, I could pick it up, but it had no mass whatsoever. I mean, if I dropped it, it'd fall to the floor, but to pick it up, it it felt like it had no mass. And some kids had old, you know, had globes or, or pyramids, uh, just very geometric shapes. And of different colors. And we were supposed to set this like a foot in front of us and try to move it with our minds. Mm-hmm. And when when we were in this place, we all communicated telepathically. And it felt as natural as 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 me talking to you. Uh, it didn't feel strange or unusual at all. And mm-hmm. um, I was getting frustrated because I never could make this stupid thing move. And uh, I'm sitting there concentrating on it one day. And it rolled first and then flew about four feet. And uh, I was like, yay. And Sue comes over and gives me high praise and, you know, hugs me and pats me on the back. And, uh, you know, I think everybody else moved their, their uh, form too. I mean, I wasn't the only one. Right. And I wonder what was the purpose of that exercise? I don't know. I've had other people tell me they've, you know, Deb Cobble, uh, um, We'll tell you the same story. I think she's going to be on coast to coast mm. tonight or tomorrow soon. But uh, yeah, Deb had a very similar experience when she was taken when she was a kid up in Michigan. Wow. Yeah. I, I wonder if there were. And I wonder why children. Like, I wonder if it's only children that that maybe were able to have that um, that type of you know telepathy communication. And I guess. What do they call it? Do you move an object telekinesis? Yeah, teaching telekinesis. Yeah. And you know what? I think there's a very good reason why we don't talk. Why why humans cannot communicate telepathically. That would be an absolute disaster. It probably would be. I don't want people knowing what I'm thinking. No. Well, you know, when in 2017, when I had that entity, Betty, um, that hybrid being appear in, in my house, you know, when I saw her at first, I, I remembered her as Sue, childhood, and we were talking telepathically, and the thought crossed my mind, be careful, don't say something to anger her. Uh, although she didn't seem threatening at all. I mean, she mm-hmm. sat in a non-threatening posture and was just kind of relaxed, and uh, it actually felt, you know, what, what if you tell a group of fourth graders, don't think about elephants? What are they going to think about? Elephants. Elephants, right. Every way, shape, and form. So what happens to me? The thought crosses my mind not to think of something inappropriate. And I'm embarrassed to say, I thought of everything inappropriate I could, that could possibly cross <laughs> the human mind. And I know, I know that this that she intercepted this because she looked embarrassed. Mm-hmm. And she said to me in a calm voice, tele- telepathically, Terry, you can control some of your thoughts and keep them private. Just try. 
And I don't know if she was telling me the truth or if she said that just to help me, you know, relax. Uh-huh. Um, but it did help. But uh, yeah, if we if we all communicated telepathically, it'd be a disaster. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't control my thoughts that well, anyway. Who does? <laughs> I don't. Know. <laughs> <laughs> um. So that is interesting that that she's was there when he picked you up as a child, and then later. But I want to go back to when you were a child because there was a certain point where you were like, no, I'm not going. And you told them that telepathically and they stopped taking you. They did. That's about the time the thing wound down. And I had one final, uh, and that's, I think, I was nine. I had one final um, uh, abduction, but this time I wasn't... uh, I wasn't, uh, Betty wasn't there and the kids weren't there. This time I was in an exam room and uh, it, it was a different kind of experience. Um, and that was the last for a long, long time. But uh, I think that must have been, uh, you know, like when you leave the military, you get a uh, discharge physical. I think right. that must have been my discharge physical. <laughs> can, can you tell the story about... Um when you decide, like the part of your poem, I know it's about where, where you um, come up with the idea to shoot them. Yeah, that idea has roots. <laughs> I explained that in the reckoning. The, the I, story uh, is like something that I could picture myself doing as a kid. Yeah, you know what? I, I, I think uh, it's what kids do, you know, and uh, it's the way kids think. Mm-hmm. It's certainly the way that I thought. And, uh, you know, I had my pal Ernest, uh, who was just, uh, he was, Ernest was just a good guy. He was a good friend. You know, we're both, what, eight years old? And uh, he went to a different school, but, uh, you know, I always admired him because he was, he was savvy. You know, he, he was shrewd and uh, he kind of admired me for book smarts. But uh, so I think together we made kind of a good team. And, uh, I told Ernest, uh, one of the few friends I ever told, I told him about these monkey men taking me. And uh, he actually believed me mm-hmm. and was, uh, was, was very sympathetic. And uh, I knew, I knew that my dad kept an antique 32 caliber Smith & Wesson revolver stuck behind the headboard of his bed, along with a great big flash, railroad flashlight, he called it. Uh, and, you know, any adult who thinks, ah, oh, kids don't snoop through my stuff, you know, <laughs> I, think, I think you're deceiving yourself. I think uh, I think all kids do. I think that's a natural part of yeah. growing up. Um, so I, I knew also that in his underwear drawer was a really cool oval yellow and red box of uh, 32 caliber Smith & Wesson cartridges, um, you know, like a box of 50 or something. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I thought, you know what, if if if, if, uh, if nobody else will help me, I'll shoot these things dead myself. Because I couldn't ask my dad because I wasn't supposed to know he had a gun. Yeah. So I thought, well, you know, it's going to be a different matter if they hear four gunshots walk in and see four dead monkeys on the floor. <laughs> you know, that's that's going to give me credibility. That's proof. Absolutely. I needed validation, you know. So I, I took, I had a, I had a uh, like a cast iron cheap uh, 
like a cowboy revolver, you know, like a double action cowboy revolver. And the cylinders sl- slung out, you could put in four plastic bullets or six plastic mm-hmm. bullets. And I tried carrying that with me just to get used to having a revolver and twirling it on my fingers like the cowboys did on TV. And, uh, and I got pretty good at that, you know, and just played with it and uh, became familiar with it. That was the object of the exercise was to become familiar with a gun. And uh, Ernie, I, I told Ernie, I said, I, you know, I'm, I'm, we're going to do this. I'm going to get ready. I'm going to shoot these things dead. And he says, yeah, but what if you miss? And, you know, this is where he's more savvy than I am. I, <laughs> I said, because I, you know, I thought, you know, on TV, they just pull a gun, they shoot, somebody drops dead. Uh, I thought that must be the way it works in real life. Uh, and then I thought, you know what, he's got a darn good point. Uh, so I said, well, we got we got to test fire. We got to, you know, get some targets and uh, and uh, let's let's try this thing out. And uh, I wasn't a big fan of being out after dark. Uh, that that went along with I think the abduction thing. So uh, we made a plan to go Saturday morning, like at seven a.m. And we knew we'd have to be back by eight and have certain cartoon shows on, or otherwise we'd you know. They'd be suspicious. Our parents would be suspicious. <laughs> My house was one block from a city park, Marquette Park. It's still there and uh, in South St. Louis City. So Ernie rolls up on his bike at, uh, you know, 655 sharp. And he's got two targets uh, made out of cardboard, about two foot by two foot. And he's got <laughs> monsters drawn on him in crayon. And uh, I said, good job, good job, you know. And uh, so, you know, Saturday morning, pretty quiet in the neighborhood. So we rode down and there were these huge sycamore trees. This, this park was 150 years old and uh, there's nobody out. The only person we can see is at the far end. I mean, at the end of the park, there's this little old lady walking a poodle. Um, and we set up two targets under the, one of these big sycamore trees. And... Uh, that was the first day that I took the gun out. I took it, slid it in my pants pocket and took a couple extra cartridges. And uh, I was shocked at how heavy it was compared to the toy that I'd been playing with. <laughs> and um, put it in my pocket carefully. And uh, we rode down, rode our bikes down to the park. Bernie set up these targets and we stood back about 20 feet. And um, I pull out the gun and it had these, uh, these like faux antler I think they're probably plastic um, handles, you know, grips. And I pull out the gun and he says, well, you got to take the safety off. And I'm like, what safety? You know, neither one of us knew for sure. I, 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 you know, revolvers don't have safeties. Double action revolvers (laughs) do not have safeties. So the only thing that's on there is a little slide on the left side of the revolver that pops the chamber open. Mm Mm-hmm. So we keep doing this back and forth. And Ernie's like, no, wait a minute. You know, you're not doing this right. Let me, and we engage in this tug of war uh, with this loaded revolver. (laughs) And somebody's fingers on the trigger. And and I think it was probably mine. um, And we heard this tremendous boom. As a matter of fact, I saw the hammer on the revolver go back slowly as far as it could. And man, it just, it fell in an, in an instant, in a millisecond. You couldn't see it fall, it fell so fast. And I had only heard guns on television. And 
and I assumed that's how loud they were. Uh-huh. Uh, man, I'll tell you, our ears were ringing, and I don't know where that shot went, but it went somewhere. <laughs> and a little old lady at the other end of the park has picked up her poodle, and now she's running way faster than any 80-year-old woman should be running. And uh, uh, we check each other, you know, are you bleeding? No, are you bleeding? So, you know, by the grace of God, uh, uh, neither one of us were shot. <laughs> But, uh, you know, my grandmother used to say God takes care of uh, fools, drunkards, and little boys or something like that. Yeah. Little boys was in that category somewhere. So we got on our bikes and we both reeked of gun smoke uh, (laughs) and start riding our bikes back toward my house. And as we're headed up, this uh, cop car pulls up. You know, it's the old school cop car with the cherry on top. Uh And uh, the cherry's lit. And the guy in the passenger, two two officers, the guy in the passenger side rolls a window down and says, do you boys hear a gunshot? And uh, I was about to speak up and Ernie speaks up and says, hey, there were some kids down there playing by the swings, playing with firecrackers. And uh, I could see down at my uh, my pants pocket, I had that tight blue jeans on and you mm-hmm. could see the distinct outline of a, of a revolver in my pocket. You know, it was right there facing him with the, uh, with that faux antler horn grip sticking out at the very top. So I'm, I'm leaning over trying to hide it with my forearm. And he looks at me kind of funny because I'm, I'm in this really weird, awkward position. And he's like, oh, uh, all right, uh, why don't you guys head home and uh, we'll, we'll check things out. And they're gone. And I'm like, uh, yeah, good job, Ernest, you know? <laughs> so we went home and uh, changed clothes, get rid of the uh, gun smoke smell, and uh, snuck the revolver back. You know, everybody was downstairs, but bedrooms were upstairs. Snuck the revolver back and put everything back the way it was, took the spent cartridge out, replaced it with a fresh one. And uh, there was an oily rag there that he kept the gun wrapped in, so I wiped it down. And stuck it right back where it was. And uh, Ernie wanted one of the uh, one of the bullets as a souvenir. So I thought, sure, you 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 were in that pal. Here you go. So that that was my plan. And then I was bound and determined to do something to protect myself. But I knew it would not involve a firearm. <laughs> right. And, and Plan B was like a knife, right? <laughs> plan B was Ernie's idea, and I thought it was a great idea. Plan B was to use Ernie's dad's World War II bayonet that uh, that he had. And Ernie brought it over to the house. And he's like, here you go, man. Because all I had, I had like a three-inch pen knife. And Ernie's like, no, no, no. You need something heavier than that, man. You need something heavy duty. And I'm like, okay. So he brought this bayonet over. And it was really cool. It was, uh, and I, I believe that it was Italian. and uh, And it was menacing. But, you know, it wasn't sharp. Right. It was pointy, but it wasn't sharp. And um, I kept it underneath my mattress. And at night, after mom would tuck me in, I would pull it out from under the mattress and keep it under my pillow and wait. And the plan was, whenever the monkeys reappeared, I'd pull it out of the sheath from underneath my pillow and I'd stab the one to death closest to me. That was the plan. It's a good plan. Good plan for an eight-year-old, not bad. Yeah. So, um, 
And I did this, I did this routine religiously for weeks. And of course, nothing happened. This is true. The first night, the very first night, I forgot to take it out and put it under my pillow. They came and took me. And the thing is under the mattress and inaccessible. So, you know, that ain't coincidence. You, uh, I think you think that, they knew? Absolutely. I think they knew. And I, I think that speaks to their level of uh, influence over us, their, what they know. Uh, you know, who knows what they had stuck in me at that point. Right. So they're probably re were, were reading your mind or monitoring you somehow the, the whole time, not just when you were on a ship. Yeah, I think so. I think so. You know, I've often wondered if I ran into one of those kids today, would we recognize one another? You know, mm -hmm. I think that'd be cool. I had... Uh, if I put them all together, I bet I got 40 letters, emails from people saying, yeah, they used to take me when I was a kid, too. You know, but what was, what was interesting was I saw monkeys. Uh, my cousin Ernest, I should tell his story, too. Yeah, Ernest, yeah, the clowns. Yeah, he had little clowns. This was I guess I guess the circus theme just fit the Lovelace family or something. But I had these other people, I had tons of people write me and tell me that they saw glowing orbs and owls, lots of owls, and um, um, Disney characters, and uh, this kid down in El Paso that I actually spoke with, who's in the book, uh, who saw a walking uh, possum that walked on two legs and spoke to him telepathically. And he could never remember what they talked about, but he'd come through the uh, window as an orb and manifest into a two-foot-tall walking possum. <laughs> and, you know, I think these, and he thought it was kind of comical. You know, when the right. monkeys first came into my room, I thought they were kind of comical. Mm -hmm. I think these things know us, and they know what, what image we'll find the most benign. Yeah. And that's how they appear to us. I think that's what they did with my, uh, with my, co with my cousin Gerald. Yeah, my cousin Gerald, the same time that I'm having problem with these monkeys, you know, age seven and eight, he's got the same deal going on, only he lives about four hours south uh, across the Arkansas border. And uh, he is troubled by two foot tall clowns, four of them. And just like I had four monkeys, he had four little clowns. And um, he had two brothers that slept in bunk beds, like four feet from him. Mm -hmm. And they never heard or saw a thing. And, you know, it's just, it just amazes me, their level of control that they have over us. I'm sure they did something to make sure those kids didn't wake up. Right. They must have put some kind of, um, I don't even know what to call it, but something that kept them asleep and unaware put them in so something maybe trance i think that's what they did to me and my friend toby at devil's den you yeah. know because we watched we watched this triangle come in uh over the forest you know something that's a city block long on each leg of the triangle and park right over almost right over the top of us and we watched it and went to bed with this thing three thousand feet in the air just hanging there yeah, that's not a normal reaction when you have a giant 
UFO floating above your, tra- your tent is to go to bed. Nope. Not normal at all. Um, and I, and that, that, that's why I think there's some level of influence there that is way over our heads. Uh, stuff we just can't, we just can't comprehend. Yeah, it's like um, they're, they're able to manipulate your consciousness somehow. Yeah. I, th- I think they're probably, I think I may have said this before, I think they're probably 500 rungs up the evolutionary ladder from us. Yeah. And, you know, I, I look at how long we've been raising and domesticating animals and we still can't sit down and have a conversation with one. So I imagine that if they're that far above us, there's probably, because of that disparity in intellect, there's probably, they probably have trouble communicating with us. It makes sense. I have trouble communicating with my dog. Yeah, my cat doesn't listen. <laughs> Neither is my cat either. <laughs> oh. I so, do really love cats, though. Yeah, I do too. One of the other things that you kind of go in depth in this book, too, is what happened between you and your friend Toby afterwards. Yeah. You know, um, there's a there's a guy, uh, a famous book by Robert Hastings, uh, UFOs and Nukes. I think it's 15 years old now. Uh, I spoke to Robert uh, two years ago and... We talk almost once a week now, and he told me that it's in the military, uh, or even among friends, uh, two people see something in the sky, you know, a group of friends see something in the sky, um, but something a little, I mean, I don't mean just seeing a silver saucer dart across the sky. I'm talking about something a little more intimate mm-hmm. It happens. Yeah. Something where everybody knows they've been under control of something somehow, some way. And uh, it's very common for these friendships to break up. And, you know, the, the best example of that is in Ray Fowler's excellent book about the Allagash Four, mm-hmm. where he had uh, two brothers, Jack and Jim Weiner, and uh, their friends, uh, Rat Ray K, and I forget the other guy's name. But they, uh, you know, they, they were all pals. I mean, they did everything together. They, you know, hit the pub together and fished together and, and uh, hung out together, and uh, then they went on this on this um, fishing trip on the on the lake up in, off the Allagash River in Maine. And for those who don't know the story, it's it's a cool one. It's interesting. They uh, they had planned to fish the lake at night, uh, in the middle of the night, and they were concerned because uh, it was a big lake, and they were concerned if they got in the middle and they fished for a couple hours. In the dark, how could they find their way back to shore, back to their camp? Yeah. So what they did was they uh, they chopped enough wood and built this tower of wood and built this um, campfire that would that would act as a lighthouse. And uh, it, you know, was was a great idea. I mean, it would burn for eight hours, and uh, they went out on a boat. And they're in, they're in this big aluminum canoe, the four of them. Uh, they're paddling. They're, they're not, they don't have a line in the water yet. They're paddling. And they saw what they thought was the moon. 
And then uh, one of the guys, I don't remember which one, says, hey, look at that. Moon looks funny. And they're all watching this thing, and it became pretty apparent it wasn't the moon. And this this light um, was a ball of white light that moved close to them and got so close to them, it lit up the inside of that aluminum canoe like, like crazy. And these guys were absolutely terrified. And the last thing they remember was paddling like crazy for sure. And then out. And then the next, it's, I mean, classic missing time. Yeah. The very next thing they remember is casually paddling toward the shore and their campfire is barely visible because it's almost burned out. And in their minds, they'd been on the lake about 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. So, and of course, in reality, it was like six hours or something. And when they got back, you know, just like Toby and I, we, you know, we had this amazing, incredible, frightening experience that, you know, two, two people who share an experience like that would want to talk about it and yeah. be brief and, and yeah, and validate and uh, bolster each other's story. And man, did you see what I saw and back and forth? Uh, I think that's human nature. And Toby and I didn't do that. Just like the Allagash Four didn't do that. Uh, they went to bed that night with Sia and just, you know, everybody went to bed, got up the next morning. They forgot about fishing, packed up and went home. Um, and very little conversation on the way and never any talk about what happened in the lake. So it, it's, it's weird. You know, I, I had this guy uh, write to me who told me that when he was, uh, oh, I forget how old he was, but he was a kid. And he saw a, uh, what he thought was like a Goodyear blimp or something. And I think they were on his back porch. And uh, it became pretty obvious that this wasn't wasn't the Goodyear blimp. It was something different. And they were in uh, Chicago in an urban area. And they watched this thing. And uh, they all felt, quote, they all just felt weird. And uh, they were out on the... Um, on this patio because it was hot inside the house. They didn't have air conditioning. Mm -hmm. And uh, they all just went inside despite the heat and went to bed. And they never spoke about it. And it was some years later, they were going to a uh, Cubs game and they're, in a, they're in, a, in a car all together and they saw the Goodyear blimp. And uh, uh, the guy's name, that was Donnell, I think. Yeah, because the chapter's called Donnell's Blimp, yeah. Donnell says, hey, does anybody remember back a couple years when we were out on the patio because uh, it was hot in the house and we saw that, that thing we thought was a blimp? Anybody remember that? And everybody in the car got real uncomfortable. And no, I don't remember anything like that. Uh, yeah, I saw that, but I'm pretty sure that was a blimp. Every everybody had an excuse. Nobody, but nobody wanted to talk about it. Nobody wanted to wanted to discuss the topic. Yeah, it's so strange. And also in your book, you have a story too about um, I think it was some some firemen who went like um, you know um, hog hunting. Yeah, those guys are from Texas, so I I got to know them. Um, I used the town Midland, but they weren't from Midland. Uh, but they were all members of a fire department for a, a municipality about the size of Midland. 
Uh, and one of their, uh, one of these guys, it was typical, you know, five guys from the fire station, they worked together, they hung out together, they drank together, they fished together. And this year was the first year, instead of fishing, they decided they all wanted to buy AR-15 rifles and go hog hunting. Because one of the guys in, in the group, his family had a hunting, uh, some hunting property that they owned down, down south somewhere. Um, and they had a, an, an old trailer on it that they could spend the night in, mm-hmm. you know, in an outhouse. And, uh, but they could go there and it was a good place to hunt for hogs. And, uh, they were going to go and try to bag a couple of hogs and bring home a bunch of meat. And, uh, it would be a new experience. They all, they'd all been, uh, in the military. So they all knew how to work, how to operate a AR-15, no problem. And, um, they, they drove down and, um, uh, the guy that Billy was the cook, uh, I forget the name of the guy that owned the property. It might've been Daniel. It doesn't matter. The guy that owned the property, they got down there. And for the rest of the other four guys, one of the guys backed out. Uh, so there were, there were four of them. One of them was a guy about 50 who probably shouldn't have been out on a hunt because he was in, in, in ill health. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they're sitting around a, like a campfire and, uh, they saw, uh, and this was, you know, getting later on in the evening and they weren't, uh, you know, they'd had a couple of beers, but nobody was drunk. Um, you know, they're first responders. So they, your analysis every unexpected time. So they don't, they don't, you know, use marijuana or anything like that. Uh, so they're sitting around a campfire and, uh, talking about their hunt and, uh, uh, one of the guys notices that there's there's a field in front of them that's maybe a hundred yards, and then there's a tree line and then thick forest. And one of these guys says, Hey man, look at those lights. And he said it looked like somebody had like high power flashlights and was on the ground shining them up into the canopy of the trees. So the guy that owned whose family owned the property got irate because I guess somebody had broke into their property right. uh, the year before and uh, and he just he just flipped out and he pulled a 45 out of his pocket and uh, you know fired seven rounds into the air uh, without any warning um, and you know with the idea of scaring away these uh, these trespassers uh, and what we managed to do was scare to death every you know all of his friends <laughs> including the one with a heart condition you know who now excuses himself to go in and lay down on the couch and take a nitro tablet. Um, so there's three of them left and they're watching. And uh, Billy, the cook, uh, went inside to check on uh, on the older guy, Melvin. And he went inside and Melvin wasn't there. And there, there was no back door to this trailer. Well, I mean, there was a back door, but you couldn't get to it because there was stuff stacked in front of it. So, and nobody saw him come out the front door. So he was not in the trailer. Billy comes out and announces, hey guys, we've lost Melvin. And we're like, like, what? You know, it's not possible. So um, the one guy said, the guy guy who owns the property has his AR-15 in his hand now and is walking toward the lights. And, uh, you know, the guy that wrote me initially, I forget his name, bad with names calls out to him and says, man, we don't know who these people are. You know, 
don't don't act in haste here. Come back. And um, he told Billy to go check to the truck and see if Melvin might be in the truck. And then he went to check the outhouse. And he said the last thing he remembered was his fingertips touching the wooden handle of the door of the outhouse. And then he was out. And he opened his eyes. And the next time he opened his eyes, he saw this yellow tile ceiling over his head. And uh, he was asleep on the floor of the trailer. And uh, their host, the guy that owned the, whose family owned the property, is making some coffee. And uh, Melvin's asleep. They, they hope he's asleep. They kick the sofa <laughs> and, and, you know, and he wakes up and he's all right. That's good. And uh, he wakes up and says, well, how'd the pig roast go? And they said, we don't know. And then they thought, let's check on it. So they went outside and the, the pig is still on a spit, but it hadn't been turned. So the underside is burnt and the top side's just gray and ugly. So it's junk. It's just trash. And uh, so they have no idea what happened, but uh, they were gone a long time. And, mm. you know, on, on the trip home, uh, he said the trip home was really unpleasant and that Nobody wanted to talk. Um, you know, the one kid had had uh, earbuds and, uh, you know, something to listen to. And uh, everybody else was just quiet uh, or they played the radio. And they got back to the uh, back home a day early. And uh, but when they went back to the firehouse, they weren't they weren't they weren't the same. You know, it wasn't like the three musketeers or five musketeers anymore. It was. Uh, yeah. Things had changed. They were different. They were different people. And, and that's exactly what I experienced when I had my experience with Toby. We walked away from that. In, in 1977, we went to that park, I think, as teenagers, and we walked away from there as, as adults and, um, and two very different people. Uh, and I think when you have an experience like this, it changes you, in, you know, in ways you can't even calculate or, or, or anticipate. Uh, so that was really, you know, it's this interesting story about the lights in the sky and yeah. the missing time and all. But the point of his story really was the fact that this group of good friends after this event, everybody, everybody went their separate ways. And um, found lots of lots of examples of that. So do you, do you think that's kind of like um the result of like some type of debriefing that they do on a subconscious level. Kinda, yeah. Only I, I think I would I, I think I'd call it more their influence over us. I think these things have that ability to influence our mind, our decisions, our thoughts. Um, you know, when I when we were driving back from Devil's Den, Toby and I made a pact that we would not tell a soul that we saw a UFO the size of Walmart, you know, because we knew it'd mean a psych evaluation and probably a discharge from the military. And that was something neither one of us really wanted. But uh, that was a really uncomfortable trip back because, you know, here this guy was 36 hours earlier, 18 hours earlier, my best friend in the world, right? Yeah. And now I want nothing to do with the guy. And I just could not reconcile that emotion. I, I have trouble wrapping my head around it to this day. But that was that was genuine 
that was instilled in my mind. Uh, and I think it was instilled in my mind by them. Um, thought had to come from somewhere. Yeah. And there was no rational reason to be upset with the guy or, or not at all. Not at all. Nothing like that at all. Like I said, we should have been, uh, we, we should have been uh, talking about it. Right. And we didn't. We didn't. So they probably do this to prevent people from comparing notes. You know, that'd be my guess. And, you know, Robert Hastings told me that in the military, you know, two people, as I experienced, or more, see something that's significant. Um, they'll break them up. They'll transfer them out. Just like, they, you know, they ship Toby off to Japan at light speed. Mm -hmm. And he said that's extremely common. Happens all the time. When, when you have a group of guys witness a UFO event, they get uh, told not to talk about it and sign an NDA and uh, shipped off and hopefully never talk about it. So. Well, you're yeah. compiling all these stories and publishing them in your book. Yes, I am. And, I am. And when people read these stories, like I'm reading them now, there's too many commonalities for them not to, uh, not to to argue with. I guess would be a word. There's there's just there's a lot of commonalities with them. Well, you know, at, at the time that I wrote this, I had I think amassed fourteen hundred emails, so I had a good amount of, of uh, material to pull through. <laughs> so there may be some element of bias in there on my part. Mm -hmm. Because uh, I wanted to pick out uh, the ones that I thought were the coolest, the ones that I thought were the most believable. Not that I judge the veracity of anybody's story, but, uh, uh, you know, I wanted to pull the ones that uh, that I thought were the best, the best. Yeah. And uh, and there was a common, that common theme hit me that, um, you know, I, what I wanted to do was get out a spreadsheet like David Polites does and... Uh, you know, take notes of these things. Uh, and I kind of did that, although I didn't use Excel, but I, uh, I made uh, notes about uh, the commonalities. Uh, like I think we mentioned before we went on the air, we were talking and I said, people that have a dream that they remember, mm -hmm. irrespective of their age, they can be 80 years old, but they have a dream that they had between the ages of three and seven. That is as vivid today as it was the morning they woke up and remembered the dream. It's absolutely in vivid color and detail. Everything is there. And, you know, I emailed these people back and I asked them, well, can I ask you, you know, you're, you tell me about your dream and you're, you're, you're so detailed in it. Can I ask you, what'd you get for Christmas that year? You know, and who came to your birthday party? And, uh, you know, where'd you go on family vacation? And most people, I don't know. I don't remember any of that. So all that stuff is gone. But that stupid little dream they carry with them for a lifetime. And those tended to be people that had experiences of one sort or another. Maybe not, maybe not abduction, but it was common among abductees. But they were, they were people that tended to have had an experience of some kind. Yeah, you know, and, that, and that's one of the things that came up, too, and I was um, interviewing uh, Kathleen Martin, too, you know, with Betty and Barney Hill. It all started... I, I mean, the, what, what happened to them was strange. You know, they, they came home and they questioned things, but it wasn't until Betty started having those dreams. Um, and then they went for the, you know, the hypnos, hypnotic, um, what's the word for it? Regression. Regression. 
and and you know, and then they compare notes of what she's remembering in her dreams, what's coming up in the hypnotic regression, and there's they're the same story. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I mentioned the Allagash Four. Mm-hmm. That's that's how their story came to light. They bust they busted up, and you know, twins normally are, you know, inseparable. Yeah. But these guys had even drifted apart. So the one twin is having a recurrent nightmare and calls the other twin and says, you know what? I've been having this really weird dream and it's bugging the hell out of me. And I want to know what it is. And here's what I'm dreaming. And the brother on the other end of the phone says, that's my dream. Exactly. I've been having it for months. And they started comparing details of the dream and they were absolutely identical. So they called their, their buddies and uh, sure enough, they'd been having nightmares. And then they, they contacted a uh, uh, psychiatrist or a psychologist, I forget which. And that's what opened the door to, uh, you know, having a lie detector test first and then a battery of tests and then ultimately hypnotic regression. And uh, the stories, the memories that they pulled up under hypnotic regression, uh, I won't spoil it for you, anybody who hasn't read Ray Fowler's book, but... Man, it's amazing stuff. It really is. Wow. You know, do you think it's any coincidence that in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, that dreams are also in that movie as well? And I don't think there's anything in that movie that's coincidence. I really don't. You know, I got abducted in June of 1977. That's when Toby and I were abducted. And that movie came out in November. And I didn't go see it. I couldn't. I, I, I absolutely could not see it. You know, I, I, I had trouble watching anything like that. I mean, you know, you remember when Independence Day came out? Yeah. Uh-huh. I watched that for the first time in 2018. Hmm. Uh, because the stuff just scares me. It just, you know, it just scares me. But, yeah, no, I don't think there's any coincidence. I think... Um, uh, what's his name? The producer of Spielberg. Is it Spielberg? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think Spielberg was wired in, dialed into somebody. Yeah. I'd like to know who the script writers were and what's the whole genesis of that story, you know. Uh, I I believe he um had consulted with Alan Hynek f- before writing the script. Well, but I but, but I don't know how much Heineck even really knew. I mean, I don't think he could have known everything that's in that movie. I'm glad you brought that up. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna have uh, I got a podcast. I'm just starting. I'm just trying to get off the ground. But uh, um, Paul Heineck is going to be my guest on March 28th. Oh wow! That's so I'll get awesome. a chance to ask him. Yeah. So I just wrote that down. That's one of the things I got to ask him. Yeah. Ask him about. Yeah. I, I, I think Kathleen's the one who told me that. Because wow. cause I didn't know either until I was talking to her about it. You know, because we were talking, you know, a lot about um, our government involvement with the extraterrestrials. Um, and, and, I, and I do. I, I think that there is some type of involvement between us and them. No question. They're working together. Absolutely. 
Well, you know, I think there are, there are, again, I'm probably repeating myself, but I think it bears repeating. And that is, I think there are really three options here. And that is that we're working arm in arm with ET mm -hmm. and uh, towards some shared agenda. And um, there's probably a written document, a treaty of some kind. And it's probably a quid pro quo. Uh, I hate to use that term, but it's 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 the correct term to use, yeah. you know, this for that. There's mm -hmm. an exchange, this for that. And, you know, they give us technology. What could we possibly give them of value that they don't have? Us. Yeah, I think so. I think so, too. I, I think there's true. I did an episode recently on the Eisenhower Treaty. And um, I, I, I believe um, the story. I do too. I, I've, I've tried to get Laura Eisenhower on, but I've been unsuccessful with that. You know what? I, uh, you know, I was visited by Betty. And I think it's page 133 in my new book. Let me look real quick. I bet I can find it. And I, and I said that uh, she confirmed a couple things for me. And that was that there was a treaty. Um, she didn't tell me the year, but she said it was signed right before you were born. I was born in 1955. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, this is our conversation. Um, she had just confirmed, one, the existence of a secret space program. She said that NASA is the public face of the space program that uses hydrogen and oxygen to propel stuff into the air. But she says, you know, and if you think about it, we haven't left Earth's orbit since 1972. That baffles me. There's been no manned mission since 1972. Now, yesterday, SpaceX got awarded... NASA's contract to uh, take men back to the moon for the first time. <laughs> so what changed? Something changed. Yeah, yeah. But she told me, you know, that when Apollo ended and the uh, space shuttle program came to be, she said that was the public face of NASA. That was to satisfy the, the, the masses that were, were doing something useful uh, in space. Uh, when really all we were doing was flying circles around the planet. Mm -hmm. So she said there's a secret space program. And you know what? I mean, I don't know why you would need a space force if you didn't have something up there to protect. My assumption. And she told me that extraterrestrials and human beings live on the moon and inside the moon today, right now. Right. And the third thing was that extraterrestrials reside inside the earth and some have free reign to abduct cattle and humans by written agreement. Mm -hmm. And four, she informed, the, she inferred the existence of a glo global ruling. I hate the word cabal or council. I don't know what you would call it, um, but I could see uh, some type of global um collection of, of uh, rulers that uh, together kind of speak on half of on behalf of the earth as a whole right you know it's uh, interesting because the interview that I did on the Eisenhower treaty um, one of the 
a couple of things came up. One is the that the person, that was, the author that I interviewed, um, said that the treaty had to be renewed every ten years, and and I guess for like the, the first couple of times it was renewed by presidents and then it was put in the hands of uh, the Majestic 12. And I wonder if the MJ-12 later on became this council. It could be. I mean, that's an assumption on my part, but boy, that's as logical as anything else. You yeah. know, I, I, I can't see world leaders being cohesive enough um, <laughs> I, I gotta tell you man I, I'm I'm as scared as I was during the Cuban Missile Crisis as I was during uh, you know the fall of the Soviet Union and uh, the possible outfall from that but you know Russia right now has 150,000 troops massed on the Ukraine, Ukraine border yeah and uh, that's going nowhere good you know we, we, we kicked out 10 of their diplomats they kicked out 10 of ours uh, and while this is going on, China's laying claim to the China Sea, uh, mm -hmm. making claims about Taiwan and, uh, you know, making trouble down there. You know, I, I could see Russia and China working together in concert. Um, and actually, I see it as a return. Remember the Axis powers, yes. the triad, the, the three from World War II. Only this time we got Russia, China and Iran. Mm hmm. When and the rest of the world, who knows? I don't know. I don't know. It, the one thing is, we definitely are not. <laughs> our governments are not able to work cohesively together. Where this other group that's working with the aliens seems to at least to be able to agree on some certain things. Yeah, I think so. I think some certain things. I think that's well said. You know, I think, too, is uh, I think that, um, you know, I started to say this, that they work together with an agenda. And then the second part of that would be they work together with a shared agenda. But then, you know, ETs violating the terms of the contract and are kind of doing what they want to do. And, of course, the third possibility is ET does whatever they want to do. And we, are, we just absolutely have no way to, to stop them. Right. I don't think we have any way to stop them if they're that far ahead of us. No. I think for us to think that is silly. Um, do you think that... Um, but I also think if they wanted to destroy the human race, they would have. I do too. Yeah. So, we wouldn't be here. Uh, so I don't think that their motives are 100% bad. Or they have some type of personal interest in this. Like if, like if we get wiped out, it's going to affect them somehow. I think they definitely have some kind of interest in us. Uh, you know, those of us that have been implanted with chips and that have had, um, you know, experience like uh, I and so many other people have had um, for a reason. I mean, they're, uh, this seems to go beyond just studying us. I think there's more to it. I don't know what, oh, it, what yeah. exactly it is, but I do think there's something more to it. And I sure like to know. Hmm. Do you have any theories? You know, I could make up assumptions all day long, but, uh, you know, um, 
leave it to our imagination. Right. But I do think, you know, 600,000 people a year go missing and are never found. Worldwide, that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a global figure. And uh, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. You know, I had promised uh, in my in my first book, A Devil's Den, I told the story about um, a 32-year-old young man from Bartlesville, Oklahoma, named Rodney Letterman. And Rodney and a friend drove down from Oklahoma to go to uh, Devil's Den State Park. And he and his friend were walking on the Butterfield Trail, which is an easy walk. It's paved. Uh, and... Uh, while they're walking, um, Rodney realizes he's having an asthma attack. And he's like, hey, man, I left my inhaler back in the car. Would you run back and get it for me? And he's like, sure, no worries. Now, I got this story, by the way, from a Russellville deputy sheriff. Um, so I think the truth, I think yeah. this is a true story. I, of course, I can't name the guy, but um, he seems scared and he seems sincere. And um, this friend runs back to the truck, grabs Rodney's inhaler, and uh, races back to where Rodney was. And this was a Saturday. It was busy, a lot of people on the trail. And there's no Rodney Letterman. But his cell phone's on the ground. So I don't know about you, but my cell phone's either in my pocket or in my hand. Yeah. So he's calling out for his friend, and... um, thinks he might have maybe stepped back to relieve himself or something. But he, he knows that, you know, he's wheezing. He can't go too far because he can't catch his breath. Right. So he calls the, the ranger station right away and says, I got, I got a problem here. And um, a guy on uh, one of those, uh, what do they call those? Four, like a four-wheeler. Oh, the, like a quad. Yeah, like a quad. Guy rides up on a quad, park ranger. And uh, they got a search started right away. As a matter of fact, Russellville supplied the dogs for the search. Uh, And they have two bloodhounds. And they brought the bloodhounds there. The bloodhounds caught Rodney's scent from the truck all the way to the phone, where they found the phone. Mm -hmm. And then they sat down. And I'm like, what what does that mean? I I don't know anything about tracking dogs. And he says... That means the trail ended. That's it. There's, there is no more trail. And I said, well, where, where could he have gone? And this guy said, look, I'm not trying to be uh, sarcastic, but there leaves only two options. He either went down or he went up. And my money's on up. Yeah. And he and, never found them? Yeah, you know, I promised uh, the readers of Incident at Devil's Den that if I got an update, I'd let everyone know. Uh, well, there there is an update, and it happened in March of 2019. In March of 2019, there was an article in the Arkansas Gazette that, uh, and you can find it on YouTube. Uh, if you uh, if you go to Devil's Den, um, and the gentleman's name is Rodney Letterman, uh, you'll get the full story. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, what happened was there was a young man and young woman, a young couple walking along the Butterfield Trail. And the young lady says to her friend, is that an albino turtle? And he's like, what, what are you talking about? And he, he looks over and right on the, just off the trail, 
in plain sight where everybody that walks by it would notice it on a log right in the middle is this football shaped object that's white and the male friend walks over picks it up and recognizes it's human bone it's part of it's the skull it's the top of Rodney Letterman's skull bleached white by the sun and he drops it and they called the park rangers and they came in and you know tried to do a forensic uh, scene for for what for what it's worth uh, and it was verified by the Bartlesville medical examiner as absolutely belonging to Rodney Letterman uh, conclusively by DNA testing wow but what gets me is i mean going back to my my prosecution days when i used to prosecute crimes was this was a staged crime scene this you know, you got this log sitting here right next to the trail, mm-hmm. open and obvious, and you got this piece of human bone right in the middle. It was put there for a reason. It was put there to be found. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to know who put it there. And it's the only thing that's ever been found of Rodney Letterman. No, not an article of clothing, a boot, a shoe, nothing. See, 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 that's disturbing. That, that 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 one just disturbs because, you know, most of these abduction cases, people are returned, um, or they just never are returned. And where I'm guessing that they're being relocated to another planet or some base on the moon or Mars or or somewhere. Um, but but for just a skull to show up. It's just very out of the ordinary. Well, I asked myself, you know, that that was staged. That was put there for a reason. What's the message behind it? I don't and know. When I think of, when I think about that, the only the only conclusion I can come to, and again, it's an assumption, but the only conclusion I can come to is, hey, look what we can do, and you can't do a darn thing about it. Unless he's still alive and that is the skull of a clone that they made of him. Or that could be too. I mean, who's to say? I mean, we don't know what they're capable of doing, but yeah, I mean, we know there are hybrids out there. Yeah. Um, you know what's 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 to stop them from cloning someone? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm. That that's another possibility, you know. And that's one of the things I, I wonder too with with the you know like with what happened to you is with with children, like are they just collecting DNA to make clones to populate some other place? Like maybe they're looking for certain traits of individuals. Maybe that's why they would test somebody for telekinesis, you know, to find out if they have that ability, and then they could use that DNA somewhere else. You know, when I wrote that poem, um, I kind of wondered if if I I wrote that under their influence. You know, there's there's a there's a um, particular two sentences in that poem that disturbed me. Um, 
And I usually get emotional when I read it. Um, let me find it just real quick. It's right here. It says, we traverse great distance, pick you up and we're gone to return you to bed before breaks the dawn. We must take from you blood and things we do need. Many entities one day will be born of your seed. Sounds like a cloning program to me. Sure does, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, you know, cloning, hybrids. I mean, we have no idea what their capability is. Well, that's some of the reports of the secret space program, too. You know, you know some of the whistleblowers from the secret space program say there's all kinds of hybrids and that they're making all kinds of creatures. I've heard that. And that wouldn't surprise me. And I've also heard that um, E.T. is really, really curious uh, about the idea, the concept that humans have a, a, a soul, kind of a transition from the paranormal to the supernatural. Right. You know, I, I look at, uh, I think I may have mentioned this last time, but it's, it's a thought I can't get off my mind. And that is I look at ghosts and Bigfoot and uh, near-death experiences and uh, my experience. And I think that if we look long and hard enough, um, there's a thread of commonality that runs through all of this stuff. You know, I, I had a woman write to me and said, I had an NDE. Do you know how similar our experiences were? And I said, well, I know they were life-changing, but, uh, and she said, oh, yeah, but I think we both experienced something otherworldly, uh, you know, and uh, I guess in that regard, she's right. I guess we have experienced, we do have something in common with people that experience all this stuff. And if there is a thread of commonality that runs through all of it, I'd sure like to know where it ends up. It's interesting. I wonder, <laughs> yeah, I'm just thinking of all these weird questions, you know, like, you know, the idea of the human soul, and we're curious about this idea of the human soul, and like, you know, we have these, you know, I mean, I, I've had one myself, you know, where I, I, I've died, and but my consciousness was still continuing. I have no doubt about it. I wonder if that's something that they don't have, and are trying to do it by finding something in our DNA to allow them to have that ability? Good question. You know, we've, we've just now mapped the human genome. If they're that far ahead of us, I think they got us covered on the DNA thing. Mm -hmm. I think I, I, I had uh, Daryl Sims told me about uh, an abductee that he was working with who says that she was abducted, taken aboard a craft very much like I was, and she was, she was shown a hologram of her body, like in midair. Okay. And she was asked, telepathically, of course, point to where the human soul resides within the body. And she says, I can't, I, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's just us, it's just part of us. And evidently they weren't happy at all with her, with her answer. Um, but uh, they, they, you know, kicked her out and uh, 
But I thought that that was very interesting, very telling. So maybe this has something to do. Maybe we got something they don't, you know? Maybe we have the ability to, you know, go on to an afterlife, uh, you know, to reincarnate. Um, some bit of piece of us is, is immortal. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, if you're not, that'd be something to envy for sure. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if that, but at, at the same time, I also, I mean, I do a lot of interviews and a lot of people I interview will say that they're communicating with alien beings that don't have bodies. They're just energy. So if there's already aliens that are just energy in communicating with humans, those aliens probably would have already found that ability. I don't know. So many questions. Yeah. Yeah, you would think. Um, do you ever hear of any of those reports of like the aliens that like like they're like astral beings? You know, I, I hear um I've had people write to me and tell me that they astro travel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm also familiar with the Monroe Institute. And yeah. uh, their their um research on uh, hemisync and so much so that I that I bought the tapes and mm-hmm. uh, I listened to Monroe Institute Hemisync meditative tapes and go through the exercises, and um, that's been great as a source of uh, a medium to meditate. Uh, it helps me to, you know, get grounded and meditate. Um, but I've never achieved an out of body experience. I, I'd love to. Yeah. Um, you know, I. In my life, I've had two dreams where I was out of my body and flying, but I'm pretty sure they were dreams. I mean, they were really cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd love to have one every night, but um, I don't know. You know, there's so much stuff that's hidden from us. I mean, there's so much we can only see what our five senses can perceive and what we can perceive with the instruments that we make with those five senses. And that's it. So, you know. We know they're x-rays because we stumbled onto those. Yeah. But, you know, they. I watched these. I couldn't I couldn't solve a physics problem to save my life. They asked me to solve for x and forget about it. It's, it's you know. But I, I listened to these um, theoretical physicists on YouTube. Uh, and I don't mean, I mean, the, you know, the real academic guys. Um, not, not, not people, you know, like me. Mm-hmm. proposing a theory you know these these are guys that say that they can uh, verify this with math that 94 uh, percent depends on who you look at 94 some say 94 some say 96 of the of the universe is hidden from us we can't we can't see it we can't perceive it it's hidden they know it's there but everything, absolutely everything in the universe that we can see, all the all the galaxies, all the stars, all the suns, all the dust, all the cats and dogs and earth and cars and, and people uh, and microbes, the ocean makes up 6% of the total universe. The other 94%, we don't have a clue. We call it dark energy and dark matter. And the reason they use the word dark is they don't have a clue. So, you know, I, I think about, um, remember Helen Keller? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I really the, I really was uh, taken by that movie when I saw it. I was about 12. 
Um, and I thought, you know, what it'd be like to have, live a life without having um, sight or, or hearing. And um, hang on just a moment, please. Let me call you back. I'm on, I'm on a show. Okay, man, no problem. Uh, so I'm so sorry. It's all right. Where was I? Helen Keller. Yep, yeah. Helen Keller. When I was 12, I saw the movie, and I thought about what it'd be like to experience life without uh, hearing or sight. And uh, I think that's kind of the way we're stumbling around in this universe. I, I think we're just so limited in our ability to perceive, and our minds are so limited in, in capacity that, um, you know, we can, we can only imagine what it is that, that's out there that, that we can't, we can't see. Hmm. So many questions, you know, I always just wonder what is going on, you know, um, something. When you, your time on the ship, um, was it a feel, like, how did it feel? Was there ever, ever moments of like where it was comfortable or was it moments of just absolute terror? You know, it was absolute terror. I didn't have a comfortable moment on that ship whatsoever. Although the weird thing is, you know, I, I, I just woke up inside the ship. I have no idea how they transported us there. And the ship from the outside was as big as a Walmart. But I got to tell you, that I, they must have taken us some other place because the thing that I was in was the size of an NFL stadium. It was absolutely enormous. Um, and I was holding my hands, my clothing in my arms. And um, I'd heard a woman screaming. I realized that my friend wasn't beside me after some passage of time. And I heard him scream and I heard him say, oh, my God, no, no, no. And then it was my turn. And two grays came and got me. And I am absolutely immobilized. I mean, I am paralyzed. I can't move anything but my eyes. I can roll my eyes around, but I can't move a muscle, not a one. And they took me down this uh, corridor and um, down one corridor. And then we made a left and went down another. And I think I explained there were fish tank like things on the right and then white walls with uh, stainless steel supports on my left. Um, but at the very end, um, they took me into this room that had a like what looked like a porcelain table in the middle, I, absolutely an exam table. They took my clothing from me and they lifted me up and laid me down on this, on this exam table. And there was a seven foot tall insectoid looking thing that looked like a praying mantis with a triangular shaped head, two bulbous eyes. I mean, each eye was the size of a, of a, of a headlamp on an automobile. Right. And, uh, and you know, the funny thing is, is when they took me into that room, I had this feeling, this vibe that relax, this is, this is clinical, you know, this is something medical. This is not a torture session. Uh, although it turned out to be, uh, because they didn't anesthetize me and they did something to my, uh, something to my lower back that hurt a lot. And I was screaming and, uh, you know, because I couldn't open fully open my jaw, I'm, I can, you know, scream as loud as I can through clenched teeth. 
Uh, but I'm making a lot of noise. I know that I can see my chest rise up and down. I can feel it, but I can't hear anything. And that confused me. And then uh, Dr. Bug, as I refer to him as, uh, turned one big eye toward me. And I heard him in my head. I mean, just as clear as any spoken word. And he said, why are you screaming? Stop screaming. You know, we don't hurt you. You know, we take you back. Now stop screaming. And he tapped me on top of the head and I was out. And then after that, the next thing I remember was getting, I was semi-conscious uh, laying on the ground near, our, near my car. And I remember thinking somebody screwed up. They should have taken us, put us back in our tent. Mm -hmm. And I had no sooner thought that than two little guys, had, you know, four of them total, they picked, picked us both up and just dragged us over and unceremoniously threw us inside our tent. And then I was out again until the, the lights woke me up sometime later. But yeah, but that part of the ship, that 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 Doctor Bug thing, um, I you know I really was angry with these things for a lot of years. I would um, be too. What gives them the right to do that? Well, they had no right to do that. That was absolutely against my will. Um, but you know, I, I've softened my opinion somewhat. And um, you know, had they wanted to kill us or take us somewhere and do something worse to us, they certainly had that ability. Um, and we did, we did suffer injuries. We did suffer from burns and I had a really miserable flash burn to my eye and, and was severely dehydrated. Um, but I think that was collateral damage. I, I don't think that the object of their exercise wasn't to terrorize us or hurt us. The object of their exercise was just to do their agenda, whatever that is. Hmm. You know, and I think, you know, like I say, I've mellowed a little bit over 40 four years. And, you know, I think if I could sit down with Dr. Bug today and have a beer, I think he would tell me, hey, man, no hard feelings, just uh, doing my job. Right. You also mentioned that one being that you said that you made eye contact with. And yeah. it makes it look like he like, had like sunglasses on, like a, a pink bumpy head. And yeah. he, he made you feel like, like, like you're the dog and he was the, you know, yeah, the that was the best comparison I could think of is that, uh, you know, I had an English setter when our kids were little and uh, they'd look up at me with those big brown eyes. Uh, but he knew who the alpha was. He knew yeah. I was the alpha. And in this, in this equation, when I when I locked eyes with that being aboard the ship, uh, the guy was in my head and it was the biggest invasion of privacy in my life. And he knew everything about me. And I uh, it was humbling. It, you know, it was humbling because it was, it was at that moment, I realized that human beings are not the be all end all. Yeah. We're not at the top of the food chain. We're nowhere near this guy's level of intellect. Mm -hmm. And that was a, that was a frightening thing to come to grips with. And I think that's going to be a tough thing for humanity to have to come to grips with, yeah. but days coming. You know, when you told me that, you know, and like I say, I, I've done, you know, hundreds of interviews with people. And after you told me that story, <laughs> last time I interviewed you, yeah. that was the first time after doing an interview where I was laying in bed at night thinking like, we might be screwed. <laughs> <laughs> and I couldn't go to sleep. I couldn't get that image out of my mind. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 
I, I got to tell you, if I can if I can squeeze out six hours of sleep, I'm delighted. I, I have trouble with sleep, and that's another commonality. Lots of people wrote to me and said, um, "Well, you know," and I think that 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 breeds alcohol abuse and uh, drug abuse, and uh, people do anything to get a good night's sleep. Yeah, and uh, especially you know if you've been through some trauma and uh, you can't remember it. You know, who wants to shut their eyes? That's that's when you're vulnerable. That's when the monsters can come in. Hmm. So, Do you have any plans on ever doing a hypnotic regression? I do. I do. And uh, it's going to be Kathleen Martin or Yvonne Smith. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm closer to Yvonne because um, we're friends. Uh, and I'm friends with Kathleen Martin, but not, not, not on that same level. And... Uh, I don't know if I should, you know, go to Kathleen because she can be more objective because we're not friends. Maybe that might be better. Right. Um, I don't know, but I, I'm not ready yet. I, I'm thinking about a thought just crossed my mind. And, uh, you know, June is coming. And this will be the 44th anniversary of the event. And uh, I, I'm not going this year. But maybe next year for the 45th, I'll go and um, make a trip back there and, and see what, if anything, happens. Yeah. I'd like to go back with a drone with uh, lights and camera capability mm-hmm. to put up on that plateau. Um, I'd like to go back with some night vision goggles. Uh, I'd also like to go back with a, uh, I've got a friend who's a very gifted psychic. And uh, I'd like for her to go. Hmm. And, uh, you know, there's a thing called, uh, there's an app you can buy. I think it's 10 bucks on the internet called Necrophonics. You may have heard of it. Yeah. So I bought this ghost box Necrophonics thing, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I played around with it and scared myself half to death. You know, I got on there and I said, "Anybody? is anybody out there? And I heard the usual noise, but I heard distinctly, Betty, Betty, Betty. Oh, that's so weird. Um, and then over the course of about 30 minutes, I heard up, up, up. It's got like an echo uh, feature to it. So you can hear the word repeated. Um and you have to listen closely because there's a lot of chatter. And um, I heard outer space. I heard interplanetary. And that was enough for me. <laughs> I turned, <laughs> turned it off at that point. But, you know, who would have thought maybe we can come, maybe since these things are telepathic, maybe we can contact them via a ghost box and have a dialogue. Yeah. Possibly. Why not? I, I mean, it's, maybe they do use the same same uh, method of communication that spirits use. Or maybe spirits are not really spirits. I don't know. I don't I even. Know. Sometimes I don't even know what's real anymore. <laughs> you know, I don't know what's real. I, I you know, I, I saw this. I saw this theoretical physicist. The uh, this has been months ago, but it, this just stuck with me because it bugs me. And he said, uh, you know, uh, everybody says they want to be objective. 
Um, but tell me, have you ever in your life experienced anything that wasn't subjective in nature? And you know, he's right. Everything we experience is subjective. Yeah. It's in our head. And that's kind of a spooky thought. Mm-hmm. And that opens the door for, you know, to, for there to be a, um, oh, what do you call it? That we're, you know, that we're living in a simulation. Oh, the holographic universe theory. Yeah. 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 Uh, and I think there is some something to that, actually. You know, I don't. I don't know. Some like the science behind it's like too much for me. Yeah. <laughs> but I can but I can grasp the uh the general idea of it. Well, you know, Elon Musk um says the the, the probability of us living in a simulation is ninety nine percent. Yeah. Uh, so that means that, you know, reality for you and I it, it's it's a one percent probability. Not good odds. <laughs> and, and I got to tell you, I I, uh, I think the world of Elon Musk, I really do. I, I think he's a genius. Yeah. Uh, I uh, couldn't afford I couldn't afford a Tesla, but I could afford some of the stock back in the day. Hmm. But yeah, now he's got SpaceX going. He got that contract awarded by NASA. Yeah. I, I can't spend $90,000 on an electric car, though. You know what? I gotta, I, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I got a 2012 Chrysler 200. I just had repainted. I love those things. You know, it's got leather. It's got all the stuff in it that you could get on a, on a 2012 Chrysler 200. And, you know, it's a six-cylinder engine, and I got 56,000 miles on it. So you that's know, like almost no miles. Yeah, it's like nothing. Yeah, you know, where do we go? You know, go to a store. Uh, you know, I mean, if we're going to take a road trip, which we do once or twice a year, we'll rent a car. We'll rent, you know, something really comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, or you know, if I'm going to go to the airport, I'll take an Uber. You know, uh, so why drop ninety G's on a car? I sure like to have one. My friend has one, and I, it's cool. I got to tell you, it's it's <laughs> really cool. Uh, yeah, nine, I got better things to do with 90 grand if I had 90 grand. Yeah, I don't know where to get 90 grand. I don't either. <laughs> I, I don't know if I'm going to get it in the podcasting business, that's for sure. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm not going to make it peddling books on uh, Amazon either. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> but, you know, we, we do these things because we love it and because we think there's a message that needs to be heard. Right, yeah. And just the, I don't know, the wonder of it, you know, like like that, like you were mentioning, we only know 6% out of, out of 100 of what's happening. Yeah. Um, so, so, so that leaves a lot of open possibilities that I'm sure I'm not even capable of thinking of even some of them. You know what? I don't think the human brain is capable of comprehending a lot. I mean... I mean, just think, I mean, if I could go back 75 years and uh, hand somebody myself, show somebody my cell phone and operate it and, uh, you know, show them, show them Google and, uh, uh, you know, show them, uh, text some friends and, mm-hmm. uh, 
send some emails out and, and get some and uh, show them a Google search and the weather forecast for tomorrow and uh, necrophonics and, uh, you know, all the, all the crazy <laughs> stuff I got on my phone. You know, they wouldn't be able to comprehend half of it. No. They have no point of reference. You would, have, you would have been able to comprehend half of it back in 1977. I can't comprehend half of it now. <laughs> but yeah, no, you're right. You're right. You're right about that. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's crazy. You know, you're, you're right about 1977. That's a curious. You picked that year, the same year we were abducted. Yep. I, I, you know, I was a, a real photography uh, addict. Uh, you know, it was my hobby. I was just really into photography. And uh, there was an article in um, a photography magazine that said that uh, um, they're working on, uh, or they've made a machine that can capture images without film and store them digitally, and then they'll keep forever, they don't degrade, and you can send ultimate copies of the original, and it'll be the exact same quality. And um, you can blow it up unbelievably. And, uh, uh, you know, I read this and I thought, this is crazy. You mm -hmm. know, this could never happen. Well, you know, it did happen. And it was probably probably in use by uh, you know NSA or somebody back in 1977. I bet. Right. And where do you think they got the technology from? Probably, <laughs> probably aliens. Yeah. Good question. <laughs> I mean, I I have no doubt that some of the stuff that we're using today came from that. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. You know, and I'm sure there's a whole bunch of stuff that we got that we'll never know about. Oh, yeah. And that's why I do think that there is a secret space program. I think they're probably using Stargates and their portals, and we have bases on the moon, probably Mars, and, and, and the hybridization program is probably real, too. Because, you know, and, uh, and out of all that, we get cell phones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Man, I don't know. Technology is just uh, amazing. You know, there's a thing called Moore's Law that says that technology will double like every two years or something. Mm -hmm. Ever heard of that? Yeah. I, I just heard that um, a couple of guys, I think in England, um, just came out and said Moore's Law is wrong now. It doesn't apply anymore. It's out of date. That that two-year mark, you know, is wrong now. That, you know, we are, we are multiplying our uh, abilities with technology at a much faster rate than that. Hmm. And I just wonder, you know, you know, if you had AI, AI interests me. I, I, I read up on that and, um, you know, don't understand a lot of it, but, um, I have a son-in-law who's a software engineer. And according to him, you know, and what I've read, AI is just a, a computer program that knows how to write its own code. Yeah. It's adaptable. So it's adaptable. And I guess, you know, somehow it can become, I guess, sentient. Mm -hmm. I mean, at some point, it you know, it can become self-aware. 
And do you remember the Fukushima uh, tsunami and earthquake that yeah. happened uh, mm -hmm. 2011? Yeah, I can't believe it's been you that know. long already. Yeah, no <laughs> kidding. There has been a, th I've heard this, uh, I don't know who's the proponent of it, but uh, I heard this from someone in the UFO community um, and someone fairly mainstream who said that, um, oh, the guy just passed away. Gosh, I can't think of his name. Anyway, um, and Phil Schneider was involved in this back before he was, uh, took his life or had his life taken, whichever way you want to look at it, that um, there were, uh, there was an AI institute uh, or a, a place for study, uh, like a part of a university that, that uh, worked on AI uh, in Fukushima. And that some AI entity went berserk and killed seven um, scientists. And uh, there was a purposefully a, uh, a bomb detonated that created the tsunami and the earthquake. And that was the purpose was to take out this AI thing, whatever it was. Uh, that that sounds that. pretty, yeah, that sounds pretty far-fetched to me. It was a whistleblower, I think, on Linda Moulton House show. Wow. But that that's pretty far out. But, uh, you know, it it kind of demonstrates AI. If, if, you, if you make something that's going to one day be sentient like you and I are, mm -hmm. you know, that could be a dangerous thing. It could, especially if it lacks empathy. Yeah. Yeah. How do you how do you program empathy? You know, my, my son-in-law told me that when he was in in, in college um, and they were studying AI, like I say, he, he writes he writes computer code for Raytheon. And uh, he uh, he said that. Um, once in college, they ask AI. Uh, what's the cure for cancer? And the answer came back, kill every human being that uh, has a genetic uh, predisposition to cancer. Hmm. Well, you know, that'd wipe out seven-eighths of the world's population. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I guess it sure as heck cure cancer. Yeah. I don't know if I would go that far to kill cancer, though. That's too extreme. Yeah, I think there's too but, many too many causes, too many. You know, you're but that is a good example, though, of like how AA lacks that empathy. It's, it's just going to. It's going to solve the problem. It, it's going to run the numbers, find a solution, and execute it. Yeah. And it's it's not going to think about, you know. How is this going to make people feel? Or how is this going to affect the planet as a whole? It's just going to solve that one specific problem and do it. Yeah. Empathy is the right word. I don't know how you would teach. You know, there, there are people that are born without empathy. They're, you know, they call them psychopaths. And, yeah, uh, serial killers. They're dangerous people.
So, you know, a lot of people give warning that AI could be a dangerous thing. Maybe so. Maybe some of the entities that we're dealing with are AI. Yeah, I've thought of that too. You know, those little gray guys that I saw, mm-hmm. and I mean, I've had people, oh, no, 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 you're wrong. I saw the grays and they were like this, or I saw the grays and they were like that. Well, you know, yeah, I, I believe you probably did. I mean, I think there's probably maybe a dozen varieties of grays out there. Uh, but I know what I saw, and what I saw, I didn't think was sentient at all. I mean, I thought they were, in fact, in my book, I think I call them drones or worker bees. Mm-hmm. And I think there's some kind of, you know, a little bit of biological material thrown in with quantum computing and AI and nanotechnology and who knows what. And uh, they're manufactured on an assembly line somewhere. Yeah. And, and and, yeah. I, I mean, that, that, that fits all the reports of them. Yeah. You know, and then it seems like there's some that, or, or maybe like, like, like you're like um, Betty or Sue, who's different, who might have some sentient awareness. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe not. You know, I don't know if I even see Sue the way she really is. You know, just like the monkey men were, mm-hmm. um, were hiding, you know, their faces were hidden. You know, um, I wonder if I've ever seen Betty's true face. Hmm. I don't know. Well, I mean, maybe we'll find out when you get some type of hypnotic regression. Maybe, uh, you know, maybe I can go to Devil's Den and make contact with her. Uh, yeah. Via the psychic and, uh, because I got a lot of questions I'd like to ask her. I really do. She's hey, answered a few, but I've got a lot of questions. Have you read any of uh, Stephen Greer's stuff about the C5 program? I have. And, I, you know, I've got mixed emotions about that. Not so much the C5 study, but about Stephen Greer. Mm-hmm. So, um, I don't know. Yeah, the C5 is, is is that where groups of people uh, sit around to mentally make contact? Yeah, they meditate and they try to call it down, and, and it seems like they're getting results. I, I would believe that. I would I would absolutely believe you know, that. And his whole thing is, you know, if we rely on the government to do it, it's never going to happen, or, you know, it's not going to be the outcome that's going to be good for humanity. So, you know, that is, is better for us to reach out and make contact and do the communication before the government does. Although we know the government already has, but so again, it sort of comes confusing as everything does. Well, I agree with him in that regard. Uh, And I've said all along that, you know, we're disclosure. You and I, we're disclosure. Uh, it's a grassroots thing. And I think that grassroots movement is what's going to maybe push the government into making some kind of admission. But uh, the, the, the real disclosure, I think, is already done. Have you heard you know? any rumors about Congress doing something this June with disclosure? Uh, yes, I have. Uh, I've actually, I read the bill, at least the part of it that wasn't... Uh, 
that wasn't uh, classified. Mm -hmm. And it's easily found on the internet. Um, there's a guy named James Lowe, L-O-U-G-H, who is a uh, former city attorney out of uh, Los Angeles. And he was just on Jimmy Church's show. Um, I was in LA uh, visiting James Lowe and Jimmy Church was there. And uh, I was on his show. And then the week following, James Lowe was on his show. And Jim Lowe, I know well, he's a former uh, Los Angeles city attorney. Uh, he's my age, he's retired, uh, but a very smart guy, uh, especially when it comes to legislation and, uh, you know, all, all, all of that stuff that I, that I don't have a clue about. You yeah, know? Me either. Uh, that, wasn't, that wasn't my area of interest, but, uh, but he's good at it. And he, uh, he wrote what's, what he calls a briefing book that takes that, that, um, um, takes that bill, and a lot of people say, oh, wait a minute, you know, that there's something fishy because that bill was tied to COVID. Well, you know, that's, you know, I know, I know how legislation works, and it's common to tie, you know, you, instead of passing 60 bills, you come together and you put together a package that's yeah. got a bunch of things in it. And uh, so the fact that COVID was, the COVID relief program was a part of that same bill doesn't mean there's any connection between the two. You know, maybe mm -hmm. there is, I don't know, but I, I, I don't think that that's a given by any yeah. stretch. But he, uh, yeah, he has, he wrote what's called a briefing book where he takes the bill and goes by item by item uh, and talks about the 180 day mandate that Congress uh, make disclosure to the public. And that date is in June, depending on who you talk to. I don't know what day. I don't remember what day. And I've heard different days, but it's definitely in June. Yeah. And, um, you know, we'll see. The language of the bill, I mean, at least the part that uh, you and I can access, states pretty clearly that there'll be a disclosure to the public of um, what's known about UAPs. Hmm. Uh, I kind of feel like we're being set up to be let down. I do and too. I'll tell you why I think that. And that is that, um, you know, there's been so many reports now of people saying, yep, we saw these. They were real. They were in the sky. Don't have a clue what they are, though. You know. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that'll be their message. Yep, they're real. We think they're real. We can't explain them. Don't have a clue. But they're real. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, I just can't imagine ever getting the truth from their government. That, that's just an unimaginable thing for me. It is unimaginable. <laughs> you know, because I, I interviewed um, Stephen Bassett. And, and yeah. he was talking, you know, like, oh, yeah, yeah, they're going to they're gonna disclose. They're going to disclose. And I'm like, man, the government has never told the truth. <laughs> So I don't know. Uh, I'm real skeptical about that. Yeah, that's not going to, I just, I just don't think that's going to happen. I mean, if they give us anything, they'll give us a, just a tidbit of information. Uh-huh. Yeah. They might, they might say, maybe they'll end up to something like to Roswell. Like, oh yeah, we, we, we did achieve a, a craft or something like that. Um, But they're never going to say like, oh yeah, we've had a communication with these aliens and treaties and they 
want to communicate with the human race or anything like that. And, and that's what he's saying. He said he's going said that within the next two years, it's going to go past disclosure all the way to contact. And I, and I don't believe that. Not not from the government. Either. I mean, I believe independently, like like what Stephen Greer is doing or what you and I are doing, is possible. But but the government, no way. No way. I'm with you. I'm with you on that. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know if I mentioned this before. I think I did. I'm sorry if I repeat myself, but you know, I, I only raise it because it's 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 cogent to what we're talking about, and that is that uh, that article by Haim Ashed, that guy from Israel, mm-hmm. um, that is really yeah. general, who said that humanity is not ready to hear disclosure until they understand. And these five words bug me because I don't know what in the heck he means. But he said, until humanity can understand the nature of space and spaceships. Now, what does that mean? I have no idea. I, I know I read that in your book just before this interview. Yeah, I, I that just that just baffles me. I mean, I uh, you know usually when I get something and I read it and I can't understand it, I, I read it a dozen times and just kind of meditate on it and think about it. And then maybe set it aside and then come back later and pick it up and read it again. But, you know, it still makes no sense to me. The nature of space and spaceships. What, are we all going to have to become physics majors to understand this stuff? I don't know. Or maybe it goes back to that whole holographic universe theory. I don't know. Yeah, maybe the nature of space and spaceships is something that's totally outside of uh, what we can even, even imagine. Hmm. Either we would be really shocked or really disappointed. <laughs> or, yeah, or both. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, but, so, so before we wrap this up, where can my listeners find you? Yes. Uh, you can see pictures of uh, my x-rays and pictures that I drew of the craft and stuff at terrylovelace.com. Uh, my books are, are on Amazon. Uh, so go to Amazon. They are uh, Incident at Devil's Den. Um, and then the second book is Devil's Den, The Reckoning. And by no way do you need to read the first book before you read the second. Um, but, you know, either one. Uh, Incident at Devil's Den is in uh, in print with uh, photographs in the back and Kindle. And I made an audio book mm-hmm. uh, also. In my own voice, uh, for what that's worth. And uh, <laughs> the uh, the reckoning is just in uh, paperback and Kindle right now. I'm working on an audio book. You know, the the, the the recording studio was closed down due to the due to COVID, so I had to wait. They're <laughs> they're back open again, and I got I got four hours worth of reading in. I'm 68 pages into it, and, uh, and I got about 300 to go. Uh, so I got to schedule some more studio time and get that done and get that out there. So, yeah, my stuff's on Amazon. And uh, if you've if you've read them already, I hope you enjoyed them. Yeah, I love them. And uh, I think these people should buy both books. I won't argue that. Because you won't regret it. <laughs> They're both <laughs> excellent. Well, thank you. That's very kind. And I appreciate it. Thank you. And I will post links to your website and I'll post links to the books on uh, uh, to the Amazon page as well in the notes of this episode so my listeners can purchase them uh, while they're listening. Check them out. I appreciate it. 
very much. Awesome. And thank you for taking the time to talk to me again. Always. Uh, it's always a good time, you know. Uh, you know, you, you got my email address. I got yours. You know, if I don't hear from you in a while or something happens um, that's newsworthy, well, we ought to talk. You got it, man. You're, you're welcome to be a regular. All right. I'll take you <laughs> up on that. All right. Oh, thank you. And hang on one second, and I'm just going to play the outro. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you love what you listen to, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe.